Let's go ahead and turn to Psalm 119, verse 145. Verse 145, picking up where we left off last week. We transitioned from a stanza where he was uh, focusing on the righteousness of God, the righteousness of his word. We talked last time about he's going to go from well, he's going to go from from focusing on the righteousness of God and the righteousness of his word. He's going to go from that to transitioning over to what we see in these two stanzas, Kaf uh, and Resh, the nineteenth and twentieth letter, where he's going to have these pleas that brings that he brings before the Lord. Then we have the next stanza that will start today, most likely, where he um, has. Uh, no, no, no request in the next stanza, and then he finishes up his his thoughts in Psalm one nineteen in the last stanza. So we're we're nearing his his final thoughts, and he's wrapping these things up and continually just encouraged in the Word and encouraged by what he's saying as he's digging through this. We talked about last time some of the big principles, and probably our last, maybe on our last Sunday, if it's not next week, it'd be the following Sunday. Just wrapping up a little bit his thoughts on lessons learned from Psalm one nineteen. Not just a love for the word, but love for God. And, and we mentioned last time three, three lessons that he's been learning, that God and his word are the same. The goodness of God and the goodness of his word are the same. And both are eternally faithful and eternally true. And in doing that, we saw last week, we began his, in this stanza, we see where he's crying out to God. And I, I, I'm using both of these stanzas because they, they, they're both similar in their, in their cries. And so they both go hand in hand, verse 9, the 19th stanza and the 20th stanza. He's crying out to God. We saw last week he cries out to God, verse 145, with a undivided heart. Um, I don't have slides for all the additional notes today, but we'll look at our, our first stanza here. He cries out to God with, with an undivided heart. We talked already about what it means to have an undivided heart. His cry drove him to God's word. God's word drives him to God. And we see that uh, exemplified here. Then we see, secondly, he cries out to God with daily consistency. Verse 147, 148, he describes how he uh, wakes up, he rises before dawn, and then before he goes to bed at night. He describes that in the morning he commits his day before the Lord. In the evening he contemplates on God's goodness. And he sandwiches his day with his cries and to the Lord and his consistency in that way. We saw then that he, we saw that he cries out to God with confidence in God's word, with confidence with what God says. Uh, when you doubt God's word, you're doubting God. When you question God's word, you're questioning God. And that's, those are two things that are inseparable in his cries, and he cries out with confidence. We talked about last week the fact that when he speaks, he pleads, he pleads in faith. We often plead in our own carnality, in our own weakness. We plead doubting and questioning. He pleads in faith. He pleads not doubting, but faithfully hoping and hoping in God. So we saw that he... He cries out with confidence in God's word and in confidence with what God says. And then secondly, confidence in the character of God and who God is. So he cries out confidence of what God says and confidence with who God is and in and, and, uh, and those three areas. So we see that area. I think I had maybe those two still listed here. Second stanza. Truth there. Right. Confidence in, in his word, what God says, and confidence in the character of God, who God is. 
Then the fifth cry I have down here is confidence in his nearness. And we covered most of that last week, but I want to make sure we, we, we grasp what the, he means by this, but you are near, O Lord. And his first cry is with all that he brings out in verses 145 through verse 150. He has these cries, but he says, but, but you are, are near. Obviously, this nearness is symbolic in nature. It's personal, but it's symbolic. It's not God, God is an omnipresent God, so he's not nearer literally than he is at one time or another, but he's saying, of course, how God is, is present and the nearness of God. And we talked about <clears throat> what it means to question. What does it look like when we question God's nearness? What does it look like when we question God's nearness? We talk about some questions sometimes that we ask ourselves. We, we ask ourselves, you know, does God really care? Does God know what's going on in my life? When I start feeling isolated, I start feeling alone, I start feeling like no one knows, no one cares, I don't feel valued. All these things are indicative of somehow feeling like God is, is distant from what I'm experiencing. God is not present. God is not near to, my, to me and my pain and my labor and my struggles. A couple of references that we didn't go to last time for sake of time, but Second Timothy, Paul describes how... Everyone deserted me, he said, but it not be counted against them. The Lord stood with me and strengthened me. So in Paul's cry to the Lord, he says, though everyone abandoned me in that moment, even, he even puts a parenthesis here that we recognize even in Christ at the cross. He says, but it may be not be counted against them. So he's, he's, he's focused not even on whether or not it it's disturbs him that others have abandoned him. He says, my strength is found where? The Lord stood with me and the Lord strengthened me. If, if ultimately you struggle with a sense of loneliness, of, of, of value, does God care, does God know, ultimately that will not be satisfied with people. It won't be satisfied with enough. Now, listen, we need to encourage each other. Don't get me wrong. We need to encourage each other. We need to, hey, it's good to see you. Uh, all these things are, are, are important. But if, if you have this, this, this lack, this sense that God is, is not near you, then no amounts of words from someone else is going to satisfy that. If you walk into a marriage with this big deficiency of, of, of who you are and your identity is not found in Christ, but found in your job and your, and your education and your wealth and your position, if, if your identity is anchored in these things, that's where you find that comfort, then when you walk into marriage, you, that spills over into your marriage relationship. The best thing you can do for marriage is that for, for both of those individuals, both spouses, to be anchored in Christ. And when he calls out here, he says, Lord, you are near to me. And he finds his strength in the Lord at times where <clears throat> even abandoned by even abandoned by others. When you hear someone, sometimes people say, you know, all oh, they um, many times when people will leave disgruntled, when they leave a church disgruntled, what's one of the one things they say is I couldn't connect with anybody. That's that's top five things you hear, top three things you hear. I couldn't make friends, couldn't connect. As a matter of fact, no one cares about me because I wasn't there one Sunday and no one asked me, where were you? I understand those struggles. And, of course, me as a church member, I would want to meet those needs. But let me tell you right now, if there's a depth, an empty well there, I'm not going to say enough to keep that person here. Every Sunday, oh, you look so wonderful, so glad to see you, you're so encouraging. Whew, got that one. No, though they are again next, next Sunday. Make sure, make sure they feel good and well. There might be a phase in your life where, you, where of course, it's encouraging, but the reality is someone who, someone who has that emptiness is because there, there's other things that they're, they're not leaning on, 
And they don't, they're not finding their strength in the Lord. They're looking for others to affirm that. And so, of course, we want to be a welcoming and, and loving church and, and, and all these things. But um, it doesn't hide the fact that you find your strength in him and you understand your identity is in, in Christ. So I'll put down, regardless of how isolated you feel or alone, God's presence as expressed and felt through his word should be a daily reality. Whereas the psalmist discovers and experiences God's closeness, God's nearness by discovering God's word. I, I know reading God's word is a discipline, right? You don't just wake up in the morning, man, I just an autopilot, I'm going to go right to the word, it just draws to me, I can't, I know you develop those habits. But he found his, his strength what, in his daily discovering of God's word. He expressed and discovers the daily closeness of, of God. And many times, one of the first things that goes when we're frustrated and discouraged is what? But we, we walk away from the word. It's, it's, it's amazing. The one thing that we need actually to, to, to strengthen ourselves, be encouraged, is the one thing we walk away from. And we find ourselves... Man, you know, I find myself a little bit discouraged, a little bit this, a little bit that, and I realize, boy, it's been it's been three days, it's been four days, it's been a week, well, it's been ten days since I've been in the Word, and next thing you know, we're we're more and more distant from the Word, and as more and more distant from the Word, the more and more isolated we feel, and the more and more we feel God doesn't care, and the more and more why? Because the more I distance myself from from His Word, the more I'm distancing myself from God Himself, and the the sense of His nearness in my in my own life. So He cries out to God with confidence of His nearness. Then I put number six, he, he, he cries out to God with ongoing obedience. And we see this consistently here, verse 145, I will keep your statutes, verse 146, that I may observe your testimonies, verse 153, I don't forget your law, obviously forgetting as in acting upon them, verse 157, I do not swerve from your testimonies. His obedience is not conditioned by whether or not God answers him. His obedience is conditioned by the fact that he draws himself close to God, close to his word, and follows in obedience to that. I, I wrote down one quote, and I want to get your thoughts on this and tell me what you think he means by this. James Boyce says the genuineness and earnestness of his prayer are affirmed by his pledge to obey his statutes. What does he mean by that? The, earnest, the genuineness and earnestness of his prayer, he's commenting on this passage, are affirmed by his pledge to obey his statutes. What does he mean? There's no hidden meaning here. You know, there's not like, you know, you don't have to pull out your computer and find out the numerology, what each letter number means, and that kind of stuff. Um, is it a bit like uh, Israel when they leave? says, you know, you're going to be my people. And then when they enter the promised land, Joshua tells them, like, hey, the Lord's going to win these battles for us, but we have to consecrate ourselves to the Lord and do as he says. And is this kind of the same as the psalmist isn't expecting, like, the Lord's faithful even when we're not. Right. But in his obedience, or in our obedience to the Lord, that's when those promises are so you're saying the promises of the Lord are 
our condition, of course, there's blessings tied to obedience, obviously. Uh, as there was with Israel and God repeatedly told them, if you do this, and you'll, you'll be blessed in this way. And definitely that's part of what he's saying here in this, in this psalm as he describes his faithfulness. But what James Boyce, and I've got, of course, the advantage of having more context to what he's saying, but what he's saying here is that the genuineness and earnestness of his prayer, which means the evidence of the fact that he is, he's earnest in what he's requesting, is his obedience to God's word. He's saying, if you basically what it boils down to, it boils down to this. It says, if your 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 seriousness and your commitment to what he's requesting here for the you know that his um, crying out to God, the genuineness of what he's requesting is evident by the fact that he's obedient to God's word. So there would be a discrepancy between someone saying, hey, I really love God, love his word, but, well, obedience is, you know, circumstantial. It's, it depends on how much it's going to cost me, or it depends on X, Y, and Z. Caleb. Well, I think it's, it's fully dependent on God, not just for the request of, hey, I need you in this moment to save me from whatever it is, but he's, he's depending on God to direct his way by his obedience. I mean, submitting my, my will to your will in obeying your statutes, not just asking for your assistance, but asking for your direction and pledging to follow. <coughs> he affirms his pledge, right? He, by affirming his pledge to obey and to follow, my, the only evidence that I have of the genuineness of my faith and what I actually believe in is how I act upon it. Now, I know the first thing that comes to mind sometimes is, where am I judging someone? So, hey, are they this way? Can they believe or sin? I know it, it, it kicks in another layer of questions. But not only in my own life, as I cry out to God, if I, if I claim his goodness, if I claim that he is good, that he's righteous, that his ways are good, that his word is good, the evidence of what I mean by that is evidenced by the fact that I'm going to follow and want to be obedient to that, and I'm totally give, given, given to that. So he, he cries out to God. And at the same time, I, the flip side of that is, is, is true as well. Disobedience and doubt go hand in hand. In the same way that obedience and confidence go hand in hand, disobedience and doubt go hand in hand as well. It's rare for someone to find himself in spiritual trouble, meaning they're, they're in spiritual turmoil in their life. Somewhere in that pattern, there's been a pattern of disobedience, or there's been something about God they have not believed, or they refuse to believe, or they refuse to accept. And that creates doubt in your own mind, doubt in your own heart, because there's a, there's a disconnect between what you're claiming to believe and the life that you're living and that follows. So as we are obedient to God's word, as he's drawn to God's word and obedience, it, of course, reinforces what we believe about God, and the reverse of that is true as well. The seventh cry he puts down here, the last two, but down one, he cries with the hope of expectation of deliverance. Verse 146, he says, save me. Verse 153, deliver me. Verse 154, redeem me. Only God can save, only God can deliver, and only God can vindicate. And then the last one here in this stanza is with he, he cries out to God with eternity in mind. And I, I mentioned this last time as we finished this part last time, is that both verse 152 
of the 19th letter, and then verses 160 uh, of, the, of the last letter in, ends with an eternal perspective. Verse 152, he says this, Long have I known from your testimony that you have founded them forever. Then verse 160, in the next letter, he says, The sum of your word is truth, and every one of your righteous rules endures forever. He maintains an eternal perspective on both of those stands. He ends with his cries with putting things and casting them in an eternal perspective. You know, sometimes you read through Scripture, and I, I was sharing this with uh, Mark Jr. this yesterday, and sometimes you read Scripture, it kind of grips you differently. I've been reading through Psalms. I know I've, I've read this before, but maybe in light of Psalm 119 as well, I was reading Psalm 49, and just a reminder of what, how, what does it take in your life and my life to maintain an eternal perspective? Because, boy, having an eternal perspective changes everything as to what you do and why you do it. Because ultimately you trust God and you hope in Him to do what is right according to His Word. I was reading this, and I, it fits so well in, a, in an Americanized society because we're so, we're so wealthy by and large and we, we respond to that as a sign of God's blessing many times. In Psalm, Psalm 49, he says this, Why should I fear when evil days come? When wicked deceivers surround me, those who trust in their wealth and boast of their great riches. Now, of course, when he says, what does it mean for someone to trust in their wealth? It doesn't mean he really thinks that money is going to buy me something, but they depend on that. They trust, they, they rely on that. They, their confidence comes from their wealth. Their strength comes from their wealth. Then he says this, he says, no one can redeem the life of another or give to God a ransom for them. The ransom for a life is costly, and no payment is enough. That they should live on forever and not see decay. In other words, it says, it doesn't matter how much wealth you have. There's not enough wealth to pay the ransom for anyone. And ultimately, he says, all they will experience, he said, they should live, they won't have enough wealth to live on forever and not see decay. For all can see that the wise die, that the foolish and the senseless also perish, leaving their wealth to others. How much time do we spend in our life worrying about passing our wealth to others? We're obsessed with making sure that we pass on wealth to the next generation, to our children or grandchildren. He says, verse 11, their tombs will remain their houses forever, their dwellings for endless generations, though they had named lands after themselves. Irony, right? They, they, they build these mansions, but their, their eternal mansion is going to be their tomb. So they spend a lifetime in their well, depending on their well, building their mansions, but their, their, their eternal mansion is going to be their tombs. And though they have named lands after themselves, people, despite their well, do not endure. They are like beasts of the field. Then verse 15, a little bit later, he says, But God will redeem me from the realm of the dead. He will surely take me to himself. Do not be overawed when others grow rich. Now, we'll talk about the awe in the first verse of our next stanza. Do not be... Lost my little slide here. People, despite their wealth, do not... I'm sorry, 15. But God will redeem me from the realm of the dead. He will surely take me to himself. 
Do not be overawed when others grow rich, when the splendor of their houses increases, for they will take nothing with them when they die. Their splendor will not descend with them. Though while they live, they count themselves blessed, and people praise you when you prosper. They will join those who have gone before them, who will never again see the light of life. People who have wealth but lack understanding are like the beasts that perish. I think it's just a good perspective, a reminder. In America, we, we measure a lot of our success by how wealthy we are, how nice the things we are, and, and what comforts we have. He says, all these things, for the wealthy that lacks understanding, his, his only mansion that will be his eternal mansion will be his tomb. We, us, the redeemed, and there's our hope. There's that eternal perspective that gets us out of the rat race that many of you are in, not because you're, you're carnal, but because you're at that phase in your life where you're, you're running to take care of your families, take care of your kids. You're, you're, you're running that race, and you're worried about how do I have enough money to take care of me in the long run and retirement, all these things that consume us, and many things aren't necessarily so. But he backs up and just cries and, and, and twice pulls back an eternal perspective that is so helpful and and so needy. So one, one question I would have for us is how do we maintain an eternal perspective? How, how do you maintain an eternal perspective? How do you keep things in perspective whenever you're chasing what you're chasing and you're living the life that you're living? How do you do that practically? Ideas? Mr. Mark? Stay in the word. Stay in the word. I mean, that's what the psalmist is telling us. The Word gives you the perspective that you need on life. It gives you the direction you need on life. And he recognizes three times in this hands right, he's my redeemed. He redeems me. He's my redeemer. He's the one who brings my salvation. And he puts that back into perspective. So he put that back in the backdrop of Psalm 49 where he says, you know, we will be redeemed. That is our hope and that is our that is our expectation. The more you're in the Word, the more the reality of who God is, who He is, will be evident in your life. And the more your life will be anchored in not just in how do I live my life today, but how do I live it in light of forever and eternity as we see here. Look at the verse 161. As he draws to a close here, we see our 21st letter, Shin. And he begins now with, we went from these, this cry and these, uh, these cries of request, and we see that what that looks like. Now he goes into a stanza where there contains no prayer request. Look what he says in verse 161. It says, Princes persecute me without cause, but my heart stands in awe of your words. I rejoice at your word like one who finds great spoil. It's a beautiful understanding what these words mean one of the first things when you read scripture what i always want to uh, why i always want to understand is what are they hearing i hear the word spoils i hear these words i hear these words in my context i want to understand what did they understand by this what did they hear when they were being taught these words and we'll see that the great spoils is what's gained from from victory so it's kind of interesting that we'll look at that in just a minute it says i rejoice at your word like one who finds great spoil i hate and abhor falsehood, but I love your law. Seven times a day I praise you for your righteous rule. Great peace 
have those who love your law. Nothing can make them stumble. I hope for your salvation, O Lord, and I do your commandments. My soul keeps your testimonies. I love them exceedingly. I keep your precepts and I keep your testimonies, for all my ways are before you. So, one, we have in, in this in this stanza a deluge of the author's personal declarations of his own integrity. As Psalm 119 draws to a close, he's going to, we went from these pleas to this, we'll see his final request and his final stanza, coupled with evidence of personal piety that's described here in this in this stanza, we see this progression of how one's attitudes impact one's actions. How one's attitudes impacts one's action. The assumption here is that the former will constitute the basis for the latter, which means my attitude towards God and his word will constitute the basis for how I act upon it. Going back to the question previously, that statement, what does it mean to obey God's word? On what basis do I obey God's word? So he'll, he'll establish that here and complete that in the next stanza, this assumption that my attitude towards God and his word will impact my obedience and my action towards flowing, my actions flow from, from my heart. So we have six indications of integrity. I'll look at the first one, the first one here this morning. Six indications of integrity in this final stanza. Verse 161, princes persecute me without cause. Now, in the other translation, you have the idea of powerful people. The New Living Translation, I have it written out here just to kind of give a different angle in the wording. It says, powerful people harass me without cause, but my heart trembles only at your word. Princes is a term for not literal prince necessarily, but for powerful people, people in authority, people who were rulers. So he says, powerful people, gods, the first indication of, of integrity and piety here is that godly fear prevails over human pressure godly fears prevail over human pressure he says he's got the princes that persecute me princes that persecute me what without without cause but my heart stands my heart is what the, the is where it resides my emotions right my heart stands firm in all of your words. Godly fear prevails over human pressure. I know that you experience human pressure in a number of decisions you've got to make. And if you're a believing family, you're going to experience that pressure in, in, in a number of different ways. And maybe one question we'll have on how to deal with unbelieving families is how to deal with some of that pressure that we, we get from unbeliever, unbelieving families. His fear, he describes here, his fear of the heavenly ruler is greater than that of any earthly ruler. I think, I think COVID kind of brought that question out to us. Is at what point do you obey earthly rulers? At what point do, do you obey spiritual godly rulers? At what point, I, had my, I asked my pastor in France, because the French, shocker to you probably, they, they, they're a lot more, they do have this, they have this hot and cold. They either submit to authorities or they go rebel in the streets and throw bricks. So there's not this there's not this real middle ground to how they respond. But they stayed without they didn't meet for over a year. And I asked them, at what point do you think you would have had to say, we have to meet, even if we're not authorized to do so? At what point is that decision made? But what makes this what makes this what makes this persecution 
particularly painful based on verse 161. What makes this persecution particularly painful? It's not deserved. It's not deserved. It's unjust. It's he didn't do anything to provoke it, to cause it, right? Princes persecute me without cause. Let me say this. When he talks about princes persecution, how does this apply to trials as well? When you're experiencing trials, you're experiencing persecution. Our response can oftentimes be kind of labeled that way too, right? Is it persecution without cause? Hey, I didn't, I didn't deserve this. Sometimes we, we have that attitude towards just daily trials. My car broke down. My, my washer broke down the same, the same week. I mean, come on. I only, person, it only takes so much. As in, it's unfair that I get all the blessings and someone, no one else gets to sanctify an experience that I'm, I'm experiencing. Um, they, that persecution, those trials without, without cause. He's faced with human mistreatment. But what's his response? His response is the key to how we need to respond to unfair persecution, unfair situation, uncaused, unprovoked trials. Listen, sometimes you're in trouble because you get yourself in trouble. Let's be clear. You went out on a limb. You decide that I'm going to buy this brand new 75,000 Lincoln Navigator, even though I didn't do the math and realized I really can't afford it. Six months later, you're drowning in debt. You're thinking, Lord, help me. Sometimes we cause our own demise. I get that. What's his response? And what's our response and our answer to, to persecution and particularly unjust persecution? He doesn't sit home and read all the verses on you know, being encouraged. And, and uh, he focuses on being in what? My heart. My heart stands in awe at your words. He, he is in awe at his own position and responsibility before God. There is nothing more humbling than to consider that we will stand before God and he shifts his focus from others and how injustice might feel, how injustice might seem, and stand in awe before God. You know, I, I'm going to put him on the spot a little bit. Glenn dealt with this for a long time. Working as a, in Roanoke, they didn't give him a real contract. And how many years did he live in limbo because they didn't want to give him a real contract? And because of patiently, was it just? No. Was it fair? No. Was it right? No. Was it? But trust the Lord. Stand, I stand before God in awe of him and his word. And trust in the Lord and his righteousness. Trust in the Lord and his goodness. And allow him to <clears throat> to work. And his, his, his focus is his position before God and his word. Spurgeon says this about this passage. He says, We are not likely to be disheartened by persecution or driven by it into sin if the word of God continually has supreme power over our minds. Repeat what he says. He says, We're not likely to be disheartened by persecution or driven by it into sin if the word of God continually has supreme power over our minds. Yes, unfair. Yes, unjust. 
yes, uncaused, but my heart is anchored by standing in awe before God's word, standing before his word, and standing before God himself. So he'll, he'll go into uh, how godly contentment rivals uh, human materialism. He talks about finding the great spoils in God's word. He talks about uh, human godly commitments provides perspective on human injustice in verse 163, uh, falsehood and truth. So we'll, we'll compare those and, and look through this stanza next week. So I trust you're able to stay behind today and fellowship with us and have some time to fellowship. Closing a word of prayer this morning. Father, I commit this time to you. I thank you, Lord, for the power of your word. Lord, the psalmist is is drawn to you, by being drawn to you, is drawn to your word. Or, or Lord, how that anchors his heart, that anchors his mind, that anchors his life. May we learn from Psalm 119, Lord, that we can find refuge in you by finding refuge in your word. And, Lord, our focus is not on the circumstantial trials that we experience, but our focus is on eternity and our focus is stand, one that stands in awe before our Creator and our Savior and His Word. We thank you, Lord, for these words this morning. Bless our time in the second service. Pray for Brian as he brings the Word. They might have liberty and clarity. For it's in your name we pray. Amen.